Hello and welcome to the Sunshine House podcast. In this particular corner of the podcast world, we chat to children's book creators about craft, process, business, and their books, of course. My name is Zanny Louise. I am a children's book writer. I am currently writing a novel, which is exciting. I also offer mentoring services, retreats, workshops, all of that sort of stuff. If you want to check out what I'm doing, you can visit my website, zannylouise.com. I am putting together an online course, which I'm quite excited about. It will cover lots of content that I've developed over the years. There will be an option to have monthly Zoom meetings and be part of a supportive community attached to that. So if you'd like to subscribe to my website, I will be able to let you know when that's available. I'm going to make it really accessible. So I hope that it will you know, be available to lots of different people. So today on the podcast, uh, it's a bit special because we're chatting to Sally Rippon. Sally, as many of you will know, is a really... Ah, important person in the children's literature community, having written the Billy B. Brown series and Polly and Buster and many very, very best-selling books for many years. Sally is also just such a wonderful, warm-hearted and lovely person. She's recently put her talents and her passion into a non-fiction book for parents and educators called Wild Things, How We Learn to Read and What Can Happen If We Don't. It's, yeah, a really, really fantastic nonfiction guide, I guess, but it's also a personal journey. Uh, so Sally will tell you more about that book and about why she felt compelled to write this, but also some of the things she discovered whilst writing it and how she uses some of this learning in her own personal life, but also in writing books for kids. So yeah, it's a really valuable resource, Wild Things. I think this conversation as well really adds depth to a lot of the research that Sally um, has come across in her journey of discovering more about dyslexia and ADHD and how we learn to read, basically. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, Sally. Welcome to the Sunshine House. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to being in the Sunshine House. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Um, well, it's a great pleasure for me as well. Um, you, I always think back to the very first course I ever did was with you at Byron Writers Festival. I don't know if you remember that, but it was a good 10 or something years ago. So yeah. I remember having you in the course, <laughs> but I didn't realize that was your first course. I think and, so. Oh I mean, it was just a very memorable course, obviously being my first and with you. So very uh, happy that you're here today and excited to talk about wild things and anything else you'd like to talk about today. Beautiful. Thank you so much. That's lovely. Yeah, wild things is, um, you know, something that I've spent a long time researching and a long time thinking about. So yeah, it's, it's good to get to chat about it. Yeah, fantastic. Well, it feels like that. I mean, it feels very personal. It feels uh, it's a work of great depth. It's a it's a nonfiction, just to clarify for everyone who knows your Billy B series and Polly and Buster and everything. This is a totally different book. It's more for parents, really. It's no adults, teachers. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Parents and people who are interested in knowing how to support kids who may struggle at school. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to give us a little intro to the book itself? Yeah, sure. So it's called Wild Things, How We Learn to Read and What Can Happen If We Don't. 
And it started off very much as a journey of research for myself. So I have a son who struggled to read when he was in primary school, um, was early on diagnosed as dyslexic, and not until he was halfway through high school, also ADHD. And I think as a children's author, I just thought, oh, well, if I read enough to him or if I write books he wants to read, it'll all sort itself out over time. Mm. But it turns out there's a bit more to it than that. (laughs) And I felt like I learned so many things the hard way. And I thought, what at least can I do with all this information? It's too late. A lot of it's too late for me, but not for other people. So I thought if I could bundle it all into a book, then hopefully it would help other people know how to um, not make the same mistakes I did. Yeah, mistakes, but it's also, yeah, it is just a, a learning process. And, you know, it's so so generous of you to have gathered all that research and then to have shared it in, in your, you've got such a, I know it's your first nonfiction, but you have such a natural, easy way of communicating what might be quite uh, difficult information for some people. So, yeah, I think it's just such a worthy resource. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's good to know that you find it readable because that was very important to me because a lot of the information that I was uh, discovering was in um, really quite dense books on neuroscience, um, also literacy, what happens in our brain as we learn to read. And these are hard books to wade your way through, let alone if you're panicking and your child is really struggling, you need that information quickly. So I really worked hard to make it very accessible, very readable, and also potentially for people who may struggle to read themselves. So I have Mm. quite a few very close friends who are dyslexic and I've tested it out on them and they all find it very readable. So that Mm. makes me very happy. (laughs) Oh, that's really nice to hear. Uh, So what, what are some of those things that make it readable, do you think, given this is your area of research? I think what I aimed to do was to connect with people through story. And I think that's something we all do as writers in different ways, whether we're working in fiction or nonfiction. And so there is a lot of dense research in there. There's also lots of interviews with experts um, that I compiled along the way. But I think and what I hope really connects the reader is the story, the personal um, experience of both mine and my son. And interestingly, in the really early drafts, when I gave it to my publisher, those were the bits I felt the most vulnerable about. And so I had initially held back quite a bit. But those are the bits that she responded to most strongly and connected with most deeply. So she really encouraged me to be really open, really raw and really vulnerable. And I have to say, Anytime I've seen, uh, you know, an artist or somebody who does have a platform, a public speaker, talk about, let's say, mental health, for example, in quite an open and vulnerable way, it makes me feel less anxious about my own struggles with mental health. So I have anxiety and um, it has, you know, kind of comes in waves and sometimes it's harder to manage than other times. But hearing people speak openly and honestly about their struggles it makes me feel less alone. It makes me feel like there are people out there that are going through the same thing and potentially people who are having highly successful lives. It's um, no reflection on, you know, how they function in the world. But I think the more we speak about the things that we find challenging as well as the things we can celebrate, the more that people feel that they can share those things for themselves too. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you know, make two really important points there is that, you know, we connect through story, but we also connect through vulnerability. And you've done both here so beautifully, obviously, with your vast career as a storyteller, it makes sense. Um, But I love 
or, and I'm sure a lot of people will be grateful for the fact that you've really gone out on a limb and done something quite courageous, I suppose. Uh, yeah, talking about something very vulnerable and very close to your heart. So, yeah, amazing. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, it is nerve-wracking sometimes putting um, sure. <laughs> that aspect of yourself out there. But so far, that seems to be the thing that most people have connected most deeply with. And so since the book's been published maybe four weeks ago, I've had lots of beautiful messages from mm. complete strangers through social media, just telling me, uh, you know, what they've connected with in the book, but often their own stories as well. So I think once you open up that floodgate, people want to share their stories as well. Absolutely. And they've handled your heart with care by the sounds of it. I, in the beginning of the book, you talk about uh, that, that catalyst moment when you gave that talk in America and, you know, it was about all these other things and just that five minutes that you talked about your son and his struggles and how that was the thing that really opened up those conversations with people and you discovered five hours worth of people who wanted to talk to you about that. Uh, is that was that really the the trigger for for writing the book? Is that what began this process, do you think? Yeah, look, I think the process probably started before, but that mm-hmm. was just a personal process because my son was really struggling. Um, yeah. In primary school, he struggled, but he in primary school, you have one teacher that looks out for all your good points and um, can take you under their wing. And so he managed to get by because he's a sweet kid and, you know, he's a pleasure to have around. But it wasn't until he got to high school and he had lots of different teachers to deal with and lots of different subjects and his organisational skills are terrible, that that's when the wheels really fell off. So it wasn't until the end of year seven when we got his end of year school report that we realised that in a lot of subjects he hadn't even handed anything in. Mm. So that's when I started to think, you know, what what do we need to do here? How has this happened? How how have no teachers alerted us to this? Mm-hmm. And also recognising that I really needed to step forward and be a better advocate for him as well. And so that was really when I started doing the research for myself but it wasn't until as you say that when I went to speak at that conference and I just briefly mentioned the story of what was going on on the experience of finding the world a challenging place or potentially struggling to fit into a mainstream education and so um I did just briefly mention my son out of a 45-minute talk. Uh, his his little section was five minutes, and you're right, you know, hundreds of people stayed behind to talk to me, to, to share their story. And that's when I thought, okay, well, maybe this story isn't just for me or maybe I'm not the only person in the world going <laughs> through this. So when I got back, that's when I pitched it to my publisher and she said, yeah, she thought it would be a good thing to write. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, yeah, certainly very valuable. What, in that process of because re- you said that there's a lot of research in this and there is um what what were some of the kind of highlights in terms of you know uh what you discovered through that process of writing this book there were a few kind of moments that just changed everything for me so the very first thing that made me realize that we are often sold a myth that if we read to our children enough, that will make readers. And for some children, that will be the case. I think that was probably the case for me. That may have even been the case for my older boys. But while it is incredibly important for parents to read as much as they can to children before they get to school, because that helps develop language, that helps them become familiar with what books are and what we can get out of these little marks on the page, that often isn't enough for a child to actually learn to read. And so I think the biggest thing that I found out during my research was that while we're born with a brain that has the capacity to be able to speak 
and to be able to understand language because we already have that wiring. Oral language has been around for 100,000 years. But we're not born with the capacity to be able to read and write. And that sounds like such a small statement. But when I was first told that, it was just like a bomb went off in my head. It's, <laughs> of course, you know, this is actually a skill that we need to be taught and we need to learn. And like any skill, some people will pick up music more easily or some people will pick up bike riding more easily. But it still is something that needs to be taught and needs to be practiced. So it's not enough just to read aloud to your child while that's important. Most children will actually be learn, will actually need to be taught the way that language is made up and the way that they usually teach this is the umbrella term, which is called phonics, which has become quite divisive amongst um, teaching uh, methodologies because there was a period of time where we thought that children just photographed words and that was how we learned to read. But more and more neuroscience can show that there's actually part of our brain that is rewired during the act of learning to read. And unless we really get that wiring done and set in place quite early on, we're going to struggle with literacy for the rest of our lives. So I think that was the biggest thing for me to learn. And then the rest of the book kind of built itself up around that. Mm, that's really fascinating. And so I suppose that's useful for uh, those sort of things you do, the strategies you use with your son as well, or has it has personal connotations as well? Okay, so going going back to the research again. So once I'd learned this, then I started to speak to people who have spent their whole lives understanding how language is, is best taught, reading and writing. Unfortunately, the English language is the hardest one to teach because we have mm. so many exceptions to the rule. So if you were lucky enough to be in born in Italy as a child, mm. you could learn to read and write Italian within the space of a few months. Um, but in the English language, we, we need to be taught. So I interviewed some speech pathologists and literacy specialists and people who work in the field. And the way that they explain that this reading needs to be taught is to think of it like a code. So really to break down the smallest units of sound and for children to understand that when they're put back together again, that's what creates words and that's what creates language. So my son was taught in a way that I think has been phased out now because it's mm. been shown to not be helpful for all children in what's called the whole word method. So that was a lot of taking the reader home, letting them guess what was happening in the story, not to interrupt them, just to help them love reading. And, of course, it's important that we encourage kids to love reading. That mm. that's absolutely goes without saying. But he wasn't taught how to break the words down into a sound he was taught in that way that was supposed to memorize words or to guess what was happening in the story by um, looking at what was in the picture or the context. And so he didn't really develop those uh, reading skills that he needs. And dyslexic people may need more support in learning to read. They can say often up to four times the amount of reading instruction. So I guess the, the thing that makes me the saddest is that reading isn't something that he can take for granted now, but had he been taught in another way, it would have been something that he would have managed to be able to do. Yeah, that's challenging uh, coming to terms, I suppose, with those realisations. Um, so what would you like to see uh, change, I suppose, in this approach to teaching kids to read at school or at home? What, what are some of the things that could be done differently, I suppose? Well, I think one of the things I'm always very careful of saying is that uh, one, I can never know if things would have been different my, for my son, of course, because we, we only get one shot at it and he mm -hmm. won't get that chance again. So what I really stress is that what I've learned is from people who've worked in this field for you know their whole careers, which is not the case for me. I write stories for kids and um, you know I'm, I'm a storyteller by heart, by nature. 
So it's really important for me to say that I'm not a teacher and I'm mm-hmm. not a literacy expert, but from what I've understood from speaking to people who do, who have spent their careers doing this, is that there are ways that we can be taught how it is that children learn to read by using um, what they call systematic phonics, which is really breaking words down into a complete code. And so kids can pull them apart and put them back together again. And this isn't something that's taught in all um, in all education schools. And so some teachers will leave um, university with these skills or often others will upskill themselves to be able to learn how to teach children this way themselves. But really it seems that what it boils down to is teaching phonics. And that, as um, Professor Pamela Snow, who is a, an expert at La Trobe University here and has set up uh, a part of the education department there specifically for doing this, she said it's like fluoride in the water. You know, it won't guarantee mm. that your child won't have any issues at school, but it will mean that at least you can make sure that they have their best shot at it. So the other thing that's important to mention is that as well as being dyslexic, Sam is also ADHD. And so it's hard for me to know how much of the uh, difficulty in reading comes from his uh, ADHD, Mm -hmm. which is an executive functioning problem, which means that it can be difficult to retain information, it can be difficult to focus, it can be difficult to organise, emotionally regulate, and how much of it is his dyslexia as well. So had I had the diagnosis of both early on and been a little bit more on the front foot and done some better advocacy and got a bit of better support, um, he shouldn't have really struggled in the way he did. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason why neurodivergent kids in school can't thrive, but the key is early intervention. And so another thing that can be really helpful for teachers is just to be given the skills to be able to recognise when a child is playing up in the classroom to look beyond that behaviour and to potentially be able to speak to the parent about getting a diagnosis and getting some extra support. So once Mm. again, it's not the job of the teacher to do that diagnosis. It's not even their job to potentially tell the the parent, you know, what what kind of support there is, but mainly to work with a parent so that the parent can identify what's going on with the child and all those support systems can be put in place early on. Often kids, when they first start, primary school can get by for the first couple of years in memorizing words or guessing what's on the page and it's not until they're actually starting to read books where there aren't always pictures for cues or the language becomes a bit more difficult that it can become clear that they're really struggling to read. So grade two is pretty common when kids start to recognize that their peers are zooming on ahead onto more interesting books and they're stuck with you know pretty basic readers Um, So that's when it became clear that he was struggling and he was also starting to say things that no parent wants to hear, like I hate school and I hate books and I hate reading. And so that's really where um, the extra intervention should have come into place. And so there were signs even before then that now I recognise, like uh, he wasn't speaking in full sentences by the time he started school and he was still jumbling up words, which can be quite common in the very early years, but usually by the time a child starts school, that kind of stuff should have sorted itself out. He also found it very difficult to follow long and complicated instructions. So they are all these things I now know are signs. So I guess it's like if I got a chance to do it all again, I'd know exactly what to look for. I'd know how to be a better advocate. I'd know how to set up support systems. So what I did in my book not only is to put all of this into the book in 
um, research and interview form, but also a list at the back of just the things you can look for. So which I title, ironically, you know, the things that I wish I'd done differently. <laughs> so um, I guess what I'm hoping is that if you go through challenging times, there's always something to learn from that. And that's, you know, it's not always a pleasant way of learning things, but, you know, I, I wouldn't have had all this knowledge had I not had a child like Sam. And mm. so I figure I may as well do something useful with this knowledge and if I can give it to other people so that they don't have to go through the same things that Sam and I did, then that knowledge won't be wasted and that experience won't be wasted. So, yeah, I guess it's, you know, it's the kind of thing we try to teach our kids that when we do make mistakes, that it's a great opportunity for learning, but <laughs> the learning is sometimes a little bit painful. And not something oh, certainly. <laughs> but you've already for years been been sort of offering so much in this space with with uh, Billy B. Brown and Hey Jack and uh, Polly and Buster. They're written in such a way that are very considerate to uh, neurodivergent children. So it, how how conscious has that process been when you're writing those sort of books, uh, you know, in terms of everything you know? Going back to when Sam was in grade two, that's when I started writing the Billy B. Brown books because mm. I wanted to write a series of books that used the language of a school reader but was engaging. So it had storyline, it had character development, mm. and it had someone in there that you really were invested in, you know, you cared about this person or you could relate to them. And so I would test all the Billy B. Brown books out on my son and he has the attention span of a goldfish. So <laughs> um, if I lost his attention, then I'd shorten the sentences and I'd make the story go faster. And so everything was road tested on him. And mm. it was also his suggestion to write the Jack series because he said, well, why does Billy get to tell the story all the time? Why don't we never get to hear from Jack? Yeah. So I thought that was a pretty good point. And you're right. I think everything since then I've written has been to engage kids who struggle with reading. It might be because they have learning difficulties. It might be because they're neurodivergent. They might be ADHD or dyslexic or um, autistic. Um, or it could just be because they haven't maybe grown up in a household that can take reading for granted. So even if a child begins school without having spoken English at home or having ever seen a book before, they will be a little bit on the back foot. And so I try to write really engaging stories with really simple, accessible vocabulary for all these kinds of kids, kids who just might find a standard uh, children's book a little bit too challenging and off-putting for them so yeah I always have them in mind everything I write <laughs> and a lot of my characters are like that too like Polly in Polly and Buster series is dyslexic and so I don't use that word specifically but I do describe what her world is like and how challenging that can be for her. Yeah, well, all these books are such a gift to the literary space and Wild Things is such a gift to parents, to teachers, to educators. And, yeah, it's and it's such an accessible, interesting read for all of us, I think, uh, whether these are personal issues for you or not. I think it's a really great resource for all of us to understand. Uh, so thank you so much for writing it. I know it's not been a small process for you. So, um, yeah, I think everyone's very grateful that you've turned your hand which is otherwise very good at other things to to writing something uh so useful and and so compelling so thank you so much and it's been so lovely to chat with you about it as well thank you so much and I think you I, I believe that you write for the same reasons Zanny, just from what, how we've spoken before and that you do feel like 
that sometimes if you get the right book at the right time, whether you're five years old or 52 like me, <laughs> um, it can change the way you see the world. It can change how you feel about yourself. And so I do feel like we have such a powerful tool at our fingertips. You know, if we can use that for good, it's a great thing to be able to do. It certainly is. And I, I'll never forget that moment where my daughter, who was, I think she was eight, and she, as an author, you expect your kids to be big readers and, you know, be reading by four or five, like <laughs> precociously. Uh, neither of my girls did that. Uh, both of them got to about eight, eight and a half, and were still very reluctant to pick up a book. But I remember her sitting next to her in bed and she read uh, a Billy B book. I can't remember which one it was, you know, cover to cover. Oh, great. Well, there you go, mum. I can read. Uh, now you have to buy me the fifth Harry Potter, which I promised her years back. So I was like, okay, great. So <laughs> she went from Billy B to fifth Harry Potter. Um, but, you know, I really, I'm personally very grateful to you for giving kids that confidence. I think uh, that that feeling of, of reading a book cover to cover is a really important part of their journey to becoming readers. So yeah, it's really wonderful what you've done. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Sunshine House podcast. This episode was recorded on Bundjalung land in northern New South Wales and was produced by Jen Pitch, virtual creatrix. The music was written by Gregor Hutchka and produced by Brett Canning. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and leave us a rating or a review on your favourite podcast platform. This helps the podcast find new listeners. If you're a children's book creator, join us at the Sunshine House Facebook group, a warm and fuzzy place to feel supported and inspired. I'm in the process of building an online course for kids book creators and aspiring authors. If you're interested to know more, please subscribe to the newsletter on my website and I'll be sure to keep you updated. Visit www.zannylouise.com. I'd also love to shine a light on the amazing Room to Read charity, which helps educate girls around the world. To learn more, visit roomtoread.org.